All right, we're getting into camp. That's great. Well, we did the introduction yesterday morning, the kind of overview of the creation evolution issue, and I drew attention to the, the notion of different people are at different stages of spiritual growth, and um, we want to continue to think about that. And some of you might be thinking, well, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm solid in my faith. I believe God's word from cover to cover. Um, don't really need this stuff. And that's great. And that's true. If you, not everyone needs to know all of the information about, you know, how science supports the Bible and the logical defense of the Christian faith. Not every, I don't need that personally. I used to, in my 20s, started off, I had a lot of questions. And, uh, and the, this kind of information was very helpful to me, but I don't need it now where I'm in my, in my walk with Christ. The thing is, and, and if some of you are in that same place where, yeah, yeah, I don't really need to know this personally for yourselves, can you think of perhaps a family member or a neighbor who's struggling? That's, that's the value of all Christians kind of having a basic understanding of some of these things. Where we can explain the truth and accuracy of the Bible in, in as many areas as possible to people who are struggling with the truth and accuracy of the Bible. Yes, you may not need it personally, but, uh, and that's the value of some of this. Again, everybody's at a different stage, we're all, and we might want to think of, okay, well, what's, what are the roadblocks in your life, in your spiritual life at this point that are preventing you from moving forward in your spiritual growth? And that's a, that's a question to discuss at another time, but in any case, our, our, our subject this morning is Noah's Flood, and I've kind of titled this, Key to Understanding Earth's History. Noah's Flood is the key to understanding the ancient history of the earth, and, and to some of you, that might seem a bit strange. Really? Is it, the, the flood's really the key to understanding that? Well, I hope by, by 11 o'clock in about 45 minutes, um, you'll, you'll see how that makes sense as we go through a number of things here. But let's, just to get us pointed in the right direction here this morning, let's start with this. What would a global flood do? Let's just think, if, if the Bible is right about there being a global flood, and honestly, that has got to be one of the most disbelieved portions in the entire Bible, right? Especially in academic circles. If you stand up in any kind of, uh, like a university or college environment, in academia, and stand up and say, yeah, you know what, I, I believe that, uh, that at, at one point in the earth's history, just thousands of years ago, not millions, the entire earth was covered by a global flood. It was a global flood, not, no land showing through. And only eight people survived, and that's where we all came from. <laughs> You'll be laughed off the campus, right? That is, that is one of the most disbelieved areas in Scripture, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's dive in. What would a global flood do? Well, there would be erosion of, of rocks and mountains and things, erosion and deposition on a global scale, right? If there was a global flood, there would be those things happening on a global scale. So it's going to impact our understanding of geology, of the Earth's geologic features. It would also bury plants and animals, again, on a global scale. If there's a global flood, it would bury plants and animals on a global scale. So it would impact our understanding of fossils, of paleontology. And it would restart human history. Right? Eight people, it, it, it essentially rebooted the human population. So it would impact our understanding of the ancient nations, uh, where, where ancient, how they started, how they originated, that kind of thing, ancient history. In those three, and those are the three areas we'll look at here in the next few minutes. Very quickly, we'll be going, moving very quickly to get through those. Or if we say this negatively, 
denying a global flood will lead to a misinterpretation of data in geology, paleontology, and ancient history. And denying a global flood, well, that's the name of the game. And in most countries in the world, probably everywhere in the world, yeah, there never was a global flood. You Christians are crazy because science has, absolutely shows that there wasn't a global flood. Okay, well, let's, let's go through it. Actually, let's start with, with eight quick biblical evidences for a global flood before we kind of get into the science. So number one, the need for the ark. These are biblical evidences for a global flood, not a local flood, because the, the need for the ark is, a global, is an evidence for a global flood. If it was local, if it was just a little flood, why didn't God just tell Noah to move, right? A few chapters later, he told Abraham to do exactly that, pick up and move quite some distance as it turned out. If the flood of Noah was local, God could have told Noah the same thing, just pick up and move, right? But he couldn't. Why? He needed to build an ark because it was global, not local. Number two, the size of the ark. You ever thought about that? The size of the ark itself is an evidence for a global flood. The ark was huge, but 450 feet long. Um, 300 cubits, the Bible says. Cubit is the distance from the tip of your hand to your elbow. So if that's about 18 inches, that gives us 450 feet or 140 meters, if anybody's here from Canada. Um, it's, it was huge. There's, there's the ark parked beside some things that we're kind of familiar with. It was massive. It had a capacity of over 500 railroad stock cars. Massive carrying capacity. So the size of the ark is an evidence that the flood was global. Why would you need something that big if it was just a little flood, Right? Number three, the need for animals to be on the ark. If the flood was local, why did Noah have to get, why did they have to take animals? If it's local, if some animals get wiped out in a particular area, that's sad, yes. But after the flood goes away, the other animals go in and repopulate, right? It's no big deal. But he had to take animals because the flood wasn't local. It was global. And that leads to the question, could all the animals fit on the ark? And well, uh, if you work through the math, and we have, the answer is yes. But let's work through it. The Bible says that a pair, so two of every land-dwelling, air-breathing animal and birds were brought to Noah to take with them on board the ark. Noah didn't have to go on a worldwide safari to bring these animals in. God brought the animals to Noah. And some, some Bible-believing scientists think that that's when God may have placed the migration instinct into some, into some groups of living things. And that's a, that's a viable notion, actually. Uh, it's very possible there. So one pair of every, seven pairs of the clean animals. So if we work toward a total number of animals, that gives us about 16,000 animals. So 8,000 pairs. Likely less than that. But if we go, let's go with worst case scenario. Let's say it was as high as 16,000 animals. And then if we think of what was the average size of those and how much floor space would it take and so on, the average size works out to be something like a sheep. But newer, newer calculations, other calculations suggest it was much smaller than that, something like a large rat, something like that. Um, so, but if we go with 16,000 sheep-sized animals, what's the total floor space needed for that? About a third of the floor space of the ark. Uh, the Bible says the ark had three decks, was to be built with three decks, lower, middle, and upper deck. Maybe the animals were on the middle deck. You get food supply on the upper deck. Uh, they were on the ark for a little over a year. So you get you know, holes in the floor, you shovel the food down to the animals the way farmers did it before electricity, that kind of thing. On the, uh, on the bottom deck, you get plenty of room left over for go-kart tracks, swimming pool, badminton, pickleball. You know. there, was, there was plenty of room on the ark for what it needed to do. 
And people, people ask then, well, what about dinosaurs? That's a, that's a popular question. We're going to talk about dinosaurs tomorrow morning, actually. Or Wednesday morning. No, it's only Monday. Dino, were dinosaurs on the ark? Well, dinosaurs are land-dwelling, air-breathing animals. So if we just go with Scripture, God would have brought dinosaurs to Noah. And at this point, people, people are convinced that it must be a fairy tale. <laughs> there's no way that Noah's flood ever happened because there's, there's, it's impossible because dinosaurs are... Eh? And the ark is eh, dinosaurs, an ark, and it doesn't work. But there's a simple solution to that. Anybody want to have a guess at what the solution is? Exact. Don't bring the very largest ones. God probably brought smaller dinosaurs. Brachiosaurus, growing to over 40 feet tall and weighing many tons in adulthood. Don't take that one, right? Don't take grandma and grandpa. Bring the junior hires. It uh, works a lot better. And then, and then some of you if, you, if you know a little bit about biology, you're likely thinking, wait a minute, 16,000 animals? Well, there's way more than 16,000 species today. There was speciation after the flood. For example, we might go with the, with the cat kind here, and if we, ha we have the saber-toothed cats and the main cat kind here, and there's a bit of diversification within a kind, and we'll talk about that tomorrow morning, uh, up to the flood, and then at the time of the flood, God brings representatives of those kinds, here's the main cat kind, cheetahs seem to be a separate branch, there's the smaller cats that we'd have in our homes, there's the big cats, saber-tooth, they've gone extinct since that time, but there was speciation after the flood, we understand that. Um, so that leads to more and more species after the flood, but yes, the need for animals to be on the ark, and they could have all fit if you do the math, and we have, so it works out. Number four, the need for birds to be on the ark. <laughs> if the flood was local, why on earth would God have to take birds? But it wasn't local, it was global. Birds had to be on the ark as well. Number five, the waters were above the mountains. Scripture tells us the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And again, if a cubit is roughly 18 inches, that gets you to about, about 22 feet or so above the mountains. How can you have a local... We had one of our graphic designers do... okay. So you have a, a mountain covering local flood. What would that look like? And this is what he came up with. I mean, how does that work? Like how could, if it covered the high points, obviously it's going to cover all the low points as well. Global flood, right? Number six, the, the duration of the flood. That's an evidence that the flood was global. The, the flood started in the 600th year, the second month, the 17th day of Noah's life, and it ended in the 601st year, the second, the second month, the 27th day of Noah's life. So the flood was a year and 10 days. What kind of a local flood lasts for a year and 10 days? <laughs> That's some local flood, isn't it? Global flood. Uh, number seven, has God broken his promise? Remember, remember the covenant that God made with Noah? Uh, the rainbow covenant, uh, that God would never destroy the earth in this manner again? Well, if Noah's flood was a local flood, there have been thousands of local floods since the time of Noah. God would have been repeatedly broking, breaking his promise. Has God broken his promise? No. Noah's flood was global, and there hasn't been another global flood. We would have noticed, I'm sure. All right, number eight. God said, he told us that he would destroy the earth. It says right there in Scripture. Genesis 6.13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. That's the part we typically remember. Look at this. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. 
God tells us he's going to totally change the surface. He's going to destroy the earth. Not the, not the whole earth. We're still living on the same earth that Noah inhabited. But the surface is completely different. So there's eight evidences. Let, let's, let's move on. What would we expect to find if there was a global flood in those three areas? In geology, we'd expect, for example, sedimentary rock, rock that was laid down by water, to show evidence of rapid deposition. Not, not the slow and gradual millimeters per year is what we're typically trained up with, but rapid deposition. If, right? Just, just very simply this morning, if the Bible's right about there being a global flood, this is what we'd expect to find, rapid deposition. And in geology, we'd expect large-scale geologic features, right? Let's say, let's say continent-wide big geologic features. If there's a global flood, it's going to leave a big mark, right? In paleontology, we'd expect evidence for both rapid and recent burial of living things, maybe even evidence that things were buried alive. As the floodwaters became more violent, it came up over the land, taking mud and trees and boulders and all kinds of things with them, burying things, we would expect rapid and recent burial. The flood wasn't that long ago, so recent burial. We'd also expect a general pattern to the fossil record because the floodwaters would bury things in a particular sequence, but it was a catastrophic event, so we should observe exceptions to that pattern. So a general pattern with exceptions. In ancient history, we'd expect evidence that human population and ancient nations began about 44, 4,500 years ago. So that's, that's kind of the roadmap of where we're going for the remaining minutes here. Let's back up now and take these one at a time. Let's start with that top one there. In geology, we'd expect to see sedimentary rock showing evidence of rapidly being rapidly deposited, rapid deposition. Do we see that? Now let's turn to the scientists. Okay, what are they seeing out there in the field? I'm seeing a massive American beach ball. That's not something you see every day, but um, it's a wee bit distracting for the speaker. Anyway, I went rafting through Grand Canyon uh, down the Colorado River, as I said yesterday, for five days. We, went, we took hikes into some of, the, some of the side canyons there. And here are, um, uh, he, here's one of the side canyons. This is a, actually a picture I took, two pictures actually stitched together. And uh, let's just get the, the electronic laser pointer. Just for scale, there is, uh, there's a person's head just peeking up out of the bottom. You can just see the person there for scale. Now notice that you've got these kind of horizontal layers and then further to the right, the layers have been tipped up so that they're vertical. And at the junction between them, especially here, the layers are very tightly bent. Bent rock layers. And here, and, and over here there's some more gentle bending, but bent rock layers. Very difficult to bend solid rock. It can be done, but then under a microscope you can see you know, failures in the rock at a microscopic level and so on. What's, what's the most natural explanation for this. Well, that's, that's quite a thickness there. It's quite a number of feet of rock there. So those layers were laid down fairly quickly, and before they had time to fully lithify, before they turned from mud into rock, lithification, the uplift on this side happened, pushing those. There was obviously some faulting going on there, and the uplift pushed those layers vertical. We would expect that if, if we go with the slow and gradual notion that those, that thickness there was laid down over a long time, those rocks would have fully lithified. And when the uplift happened on this side of the stream, those rocks would have, would have broken, not bent. But they must have still been muddy in a sense, right? 
So the explanation there is rapid deposition. That whole thing was rapidly deposited. That's the most natural explanation when we see something like that. Are there other examples that we can point to? Yeah, here's another one here. There's a tree-like fossil going through multiple layers of rock. And we see, we see those all over the world. Um, now, how, obviously, the whole tree-like fossil must have been buried fairly quickly. If it was slow and gradual, the top of the tree would have rotted, right? Again, rapid deposition. Here's a vertical fossil tree with its base in a coal seam. This is from down in Tennessee. I mean, what's happening there? Trees don't grow in coal, and, and if it's slow and gradual deposition, how, it, that wouldn't work, would it? The entire thing must have been buried rapidly. There are many other examples we can look at. We don't have time this morning, so we'll move on. So do we see sedimentary rock showing evidence of rapid deposition? Yes, we do. There's a couple of examples. Let's move on to the next one. Large-scale features. Do we see large-scale geologic features? Well, yeah, we do. Let's go back to the Grand Canyon. We were just there as a family a couple weeks ago. And uh, here's a cross-section of the rocks in the canyon. You can see that the canyon's over here. This is, the, this is further to the south, further to the north here. There's Zion Canyon, Bryce Canyon up here. We visited those places as well. Beautiful places there in the American Southwest. And um, if we, the, the first thing we notice is the huge extent of some of these rock layers here, right? These rock layers extend. Actually, some of those layers can be traced to England. <laughs> that is a large-scale geologic feature, isn't it? <laughs> Not just in the American Southwest, but clear across the ocean. Large-scale geologic feature. So you have a large amount of deposition over a huge area, and there's a huge amount of erosion as well. If we follow the strata at the rim of the canyon from the south further to the north, well, up north, there's thousands of feet of additional layers of rock which have been eroded over the Grand Canyon area. There's evidence over the Grand Canyon area for about five kilometers, oh, okay, three miles or so of, of rock that used to be, of layers that used to be there that have been eroded. So we see at the Grand Canyon huge deposition and huge erosion. That fits with a global flood. That's the kind of thing that we would expect if the Bible's correct about there being a global flood. And we certainly believe it is. What are some other large-scale features? Well, how about the fit of the continents? The continents seem to have a jigsaw puzzle-like fit. Some of you know what that's about, right? You've heard of continental drift and so on. The first person to actually describe that was a Bible-believing scientist. He was a French scientist. His name was Antonio Snyder, published in 1859. He did these drawings here. And, and since he believed the Bible, he believed that the original supercontinent probably broke up during the flood. Now, he didn't have the science back then that we have today. Turns out he was absolutely right. That's the only place in biblical history where that happened. And it didn't happen slowly, as we've all heard. It happened rapidly. There's a powerful, powerful scientific model done by the world's leading geophysicist in modeling plate tectonics. Here he is here, Dr. John Baumgartner. Uh, he, was, he was working at Los Alamos National Laboratories, a fairly prestigious scientific outfit if, you, if you're a World War II buff and that kind of thing, um, using supercomputers. You can't run this on a PC, not even a Mac will do it. Um, you need supercomputer, all the physics, all the conservation of energy equations to get the model to accurately simulate the movement of the continents. Uh, it, it takes a lot, of, a lot of horsepower there in computing. He's acknowledged by other geophysicists as having developed the best 3D supercomputer model of plate tectonics. He's the number one guy in the world in this field. His model has been independently duplicated by other researchers and they get the same results. 
Now, that's, if, if you do good science and keep a good logbook and others can take your notes, do the same experiment and get the same results that you did, you've, you've done your homework. That's, that's good stuff. And by the way, Dr. Baumgartner's a biblical creationist. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Because people think, well, there are no real scientists who believe the Bible. That's nonsense. There's thousands of them today, and there have been thousands in the past of, of great Bible-believing scientists that, that, that do good science as well. Here's some of the outputs from the supercomputer model, which you can just run through these quickly here. Um, okay, let's use this one here. You can kind of see the, the initial supercontinent there, the way it may have looked like with no Atlantic Ocean. Here's what the Atlantic Ocean is going to be. You can see North America. Here we are right here. And South America, um, so the, the red and yellow areas are high temperature rock. That's where essentially molten rock is coming from near the core to form new ocean plates. The, the dark blue areas here are subduction zones. That's where the, the pre-flood ocean plates are being subducted. They're being pulled. They're, they're sinking into the earth. Gravity, they're very heavy. Their gravity is pulling them into the earth. And so in places, the earth's surface is shrinking and in other places, new surface is being produced. Here's a little bit later in the process. What can we look at here? So there's the Atlantic Ocean opening up here. You can see that. There's the Mid-Atlantic Ridge forming. Um, all, all down the west coast of North and South America, you have a subduction zone. The Pacific Plate is being pulled into the earth. Uh, what else is going on? Okay, in, here's India. is going up. If you get close, you can see the arrows and the vectors. Asia is coming down. India is coming up. Guess what happens when they collide? Smash. You push up the Himalayan mountain chain. The Himalayas and Mount Everest didn't exist before the flood. Now, Mount Everest is five and a half miles above sea level. And, and there's fish fossils on the summit of Mount Everest. What's, what's going on there? Fish don't climb mountains. How did, how did they get that? It's because that was at one point underwater. It was a global flood, and it pushed those. Now, they're fine. work has been done on the, the slow and grad, the continental drift version that we've all been taught in school, slow, you know, two centimeters or, or two inches per year, that kind of thing. Is there enough energy there to push up the mountain chain? And the answer is no. You need to smash those plates together at a higher rate of speed to get that mountain chain. Many of the world's mountains have marine fossils on the summit. Many of the world's mountain chains are the result of these processes going on during the flood. That kind of leads to the question, where'd the water come from for the flood? Five and a half miles? Do you remember Jacques Cousteau? Does anybody know that name? If, if you're, okay, or if you're under, wow, some under 30s know that name too. Because <laughs> he, he was not a Christian, didn't believe the Bible, but he knew a lot about the oceans, didn't he? He was the first person to kind of take, take camera, like movie cameras with waterproof housings underneath the ocean. He basically showed us what was going on underneath the oceans. Had these great underwater, these, these nature documentaries, fantastic stuff. He was instrumental in the, in the development of the aqua lung, which later became scuba. He said that if you were to raise the ocean bottoms and lower the continents so that everything around the world is at the same level, there's enough water in the oceans today to flood the entire earth to a depth of more than two miles. So where'd the water come from for the flood? The oceans. And afterwards, it went into the, the deepening ocean basins. As they're produced, toward the end, middle end of the flood, the ocean basins start deepening, and the water rushes off the continents into the deepening ocean basins. Now, I mentioned Everest. Everest is way more than two miles, but Everest didn't exist until late in the flood. 
Interesting how it all works out, doesn't it? The Bible's true. We can trust the Bible. And the more science we do, the more people we consult that know about the oceans and know about geology and fossils and so on, it supports what we believe as Christians. In this area where people ridicule Christians and you believe in a global flood, that's nonsense. And yet, the more work that's done to, okay, well, here's what a flood would do and here's what scientists are finding, hey, we have a match. It's great, great time to be a Christian. I think I said that yesterday once or twice. But anyways, there are some large-scale features. We could mention more of them, but uh, for sake of time, let's move on. Paleontology. In paleontology, we'd expect, again, evidence for both rapid and recent burial. Okay, scientists, do we see evidence for rapid and recent burial? Let's turn to the paleontologist, and they find things like this. Here's a fish fossilized in the process of e eating its lunch, right? How long did it take to eat that fish? Millions of years? And we can, we can point to some other things that, that speak of rapid burial. Can, can, you, can you point to some things on there, highlight some things that kind of speak of rapid burial? How about its preservation? It's, it's fairly well preserved, right? The, the spine is still all together. The fins are coming, they're, they're decomposing a little bit, but it hasn't decomposed a whole lot, right? It was, it was uh, oh, that's, that's recent burial. Oh, no, that's rapid burial. I'm getting my things mixed up here. But yeah, it, it was rapidly buried. It didn't, lay, it didn't lay around on the bottom of a lake or an ocean and, and rot to some extent before it was buried and then began to fossilize. It's an articulated fossil, not a disarticulated fossil. The bones are still mostly all together. Yeah, and how long did it take to eat that fish? Here's some more dramatic examples. I mean, at least the fish had cartilage. That's an octopus and a jellyfish. Those things don't even, they don't have any hard parts. The octopus has a bit of a beak-like thing, but it's jellyfish laying around on a beach. How long could that thing last? A, a week, maybe? Which means it must have been buried before it decomposed. That's rapid burial. And scientists find fossils like this all around the world, beautifully preserved plants and animals, which means there must have been rapid burial on a global scale. I love being a Christian. That's fantastic. Yes, there's examples of rapid burial. What about recent burial? Animals that, we, that haven't been in the rock for millions of years. Let's turn to, here's a famous Canadian uh, dinosaur hunter, and if, if you're into paleontology, you might know this guy, Dr. Phil Curry. Uh, in his dinosaur book, he said this, bones do not have to be turned to stone to be fossils. And usually, listen to this, most of the original bone is still present in a dinosaur fossil. Now, bone, it's still organic material, it's still going to decompose. I mean, slower, obviously, than soft and squishy bits. But as, as a, as a world-famous dinosaur hunter, this guy knows dinosaurs, the original bone is still there. It hasn't decomposed, which means it couldn't be millions of years old. Because bone would decompose over millions of years, as an example, here's, this is a T-Rex called Wankel Rex. It's named after Kathy Wankel, who discovered it. It's about 90% complete, 90% complete T-Rex. Very unusual to find a, an animal that complete in the fossil record. Back to Dr. Phil Curry, he says, the nodules prevented water. He's talking about his excuse for how they could be preserved, but I, I like this next session. Um, the waters prevented water from invading the bones, which for all intents and purposes cannot be distinguished from modern bone. Doesn't that blow your mind? 
So here you have a modern bone. Let's say, let's say a, a cow died in a field or something. And here you have a dinosaur bone. And you can't distinguish the dinosaur bone from the modern bone. You know what that tells me? That the dinosaur bone isn't millions of years old. Recent burial. And then I showed you, taking it a step further, I showed you this yesterday already when we talked about dinosaurs. There's a T-Rex blood vessel and blood cells in the bottom there. Hadrosaur soft tissue. I showed you that as well. Many other instances, over 40 instances now over the, next, over the last decade and a half or so of soft and stretchy tissue, blood cells, blood vessels, different kinds of dino protein, and yes, dino's DN, dino DNA has been discovered. Now, obviously, folks who believe that dinosaurs died millions of years ago um, have a problem with this. <laughs> Those things can't last that long, so they did some work. They did some science, tried to estimate how long could DNA last. And what they came up with was 6.8 million years, not 68. The maximum age that DNA could last, 6.8 million years. That's nowhere close to where they need it to be to fit into that millions of years evolutionary history. Because dinosaurs supposedly all died 65 million years ago and longer than that. But here's the kicker. It could last 6.8 million years if it's frozen solid. <laughs> a lot of these dinosaurs that they're studying are found in Montana. They have summer in Montana, right? <laughs> Amazing. The science doesn't fit that history at all. It fits the Bible. Cool. Let's move on. There's other examples we could give of rapid and recent burial. Don't have time. We would expect, in the fossil record... A general pattern, because a global flood, it, what, what would be the first things buried? Probably creatures in the ocean, right? And then as the floodwaters get more turbulent and go higher, there'd be, there'd be amphibians that live, live near the shoreline, then reptiles, and the last things to be buried would be mountain goats, right, that live near the centers of the continents. So we, we'd expect a general pattern to the fossil record, but it was a catastrophic event. So we'd expect exceptions to that as well. Um, so, so what do we find? Well, the first things buried would be creatures at the bottom of the ocean. Moving water has a tremendous ability to sort things by size, by shape, and by buoyancy. Now, again, it was a catastrophic event, so we should observe exceptions to that. Now, here's where it differs from evolution, differs tremendously. Evolution predicts a very, very ordered pattern. No exceptions. Because they say that, okay, here's a layer of rock and here's a layer of rock and so on. And some of the guys in this layer of rock, they evolved into the guys here. And so in this layer of rock, you're never, ever going to find again the guys from this layer of rock because they don't exist anymore. They either went extinct or they evolved. And so the, to the evolutionists, they have to have a very, very ordered sequence to the fossil record. Is that what scientists find? No. I'll give you an example. That cliff on the horizon there, that's the Horema Formation from South America. It's dated in the, in the evolutionary dating to be over half a billion years old, 550 million years old. There's a closer view of it there. Now, that rock formation contains a lot of fossilized pollen. It's very rich in pollen. It, here's the problem. Flowering plants that, that make pollen weren't supposed to have evolved for another 390 million years. Oops, how can you have pollen if you don't have the plants that make pollen? There's an out-of-place fossil. 
And there's many other examples of that. But that, uh, nevertheless, we've probably seen this in textbooks. Uh, evolutionists make up this, this beautifully illustrated chart here of all these different ages of the different layers of rock and, and the animals that apparently characterize those layers and so on. And we've been told that, well, there's an age of dinosaurs, and then, the, and then the dinosaurs went extinct, and then there's the age of mammals, and there's this very neat progression. Again, is that what scientists actually find? There's a general pattern. Yes, we see that. Um, Dr. Carl Werner has gone around. He and his wife, Debbie, have gone around to, to many different museums and, and talked to scientists and so on. He himself is a scientist, and he writes, paleontologists have found 432 mammal species in the dinosaur layers, almost as many as the number of dinosaur species. But where are these fossils? We visited 60 museums but did not see a single complete mammal skeleton from the dinosaur layers displayed at any of these museums. This is amazing, he says. So if there's almost the same number of mammal species at the time of the dinosaurs, is it really the age of dinosaurs? <laughs> I don't think so, right? They're all mixed up together. Interesting. So there are some examples there. Uh, let's move on uh, before we run out of time. In ancient history, we would expect evidence that human population in ancient nations began about 44, 4,500 years ago. At the end of the flood, again, the whole human population, however many people were there at that point, of, at the point in time of Noah, were reduced, were rebooted from eight people. So do we see evidence of that? Let's, let's, let's start with something simple, population growth. Is it even possible to get seven and a half or so billion people from the eight that got off the ark uh, a few thousand years ago? Well, the current population growth is 1.1% per year. Now, what that means is for every 100 million people, 1.1 million are added every year. That's a 1.1% population growth. All that you would need to get the current population that we have today from the eight that got off the ark is half a percent. It, it works out. And there was plagues and things in the past that reduced population to some extent. We understand that. All you'd need is half a percent. Current population is 1.1. No problem getting today's population. But if we go with the other historical perspective, what if humans began, true humans, about a million years ago, breaking off from an ape-like uh, ancestor, that kind of thing, if we lower the growth rate to something completely unreasonable, like 0.01%, even at that incredibly low growth rate, we would expect today somewhere around 10 to the 43rd people. That's the number one with 43 zeros after it. Where is everybody? <laughs> the evolutionary history doesn't fit at all. It's way off. It's way too long. Again, the Bible's history is confirmed. Here's another little evidence that supports what Scripture says. It's a great time to be a Christian. Now, what about nations? If we think of ancient nations and so on, and, and this, this is an amazing evidence for the accuracy of Scripture and a global flood specifically. The ancient nations, many of them can be traced directly back to a single family. If there wasn't a global flood, why on earth would you be able to do that? For example, Mizraim, that's one of Noah's grandsons, is the Hebrew word for Egypt. Egypt can be traced directly back to one of Noah's grandsons, and obviously back to Noah. Isn't that incredible? If you go to Google Earth and you select, you want to display the original languages, Egypt is called Mizir. 
We can trace that nation back to Noah's family. Incredible. Ashkenaz, one of Noah's great-grandsons, is the Hebrew word for Germany. Canaan, that's, that's one that you're, you're probably a little familiar with, is the region around Palestine, that kind of thing. Javan is the Hebrew word for Greece, so Greece can be traced as an ancient nation, can be traced directly back to Noah. Kush, the Hebrew word for old Ethiopia, not modern Ethiopia so much, but the old country. Meshesh is the ancient name for Moscow. You still find that name with the spelling unchanged on maps in, in, in Russia today, around the Meshesh lowlands. It still, it still retains the same spelling. You can trace these things back to a single family. Incredible evidence for a global flood. The whole human population and then the ancient nations coming from a single family. In your Bibles around Genesis 10, you might have something like this. If you have a study Bible, it's called the Table of Nations. And there you can see that many of those ancient nations began, they can be traced directly back to one family. If there wasn't a global flood, you wouldn't be able to do that, would you? And then there's over 400 flood legends Different people around the world have legends of a watery catastrophe and there was a favored person or a favored family or something like that. They have a lot of similarity to the biblical account. Even people, look at this, people here at the end in, in Fiji and Hawaii have a flood legend. <laughs> if the flood of Noah in ancient Mesopotamia was only local, how come people in Hawaii and Fiji would have a, would have a, a global flood legend? It's because the flood was global and all those people came from Noah's family. And those, those legends were passed on through the family. Another powerful evidence for a global flood. And think of the origin of nations. The Bible says, To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. That's kind of what Peleg means, the earth was divided. And that's in Genesis 10.25. So this is... Um, uh, and by the way, this is not talking about what we just, we just mentioned, the, breakup of the, the physical breakup of the earth. This is talking about the breakup of the earth by language. A few verses later, in Genesis 11, verse 1, it says, Now the whole earth, same word here, earth, for in his days the earth was divided. Now the whole earth had one language. Well, that's not referring to the physical earth either. It's referring to the people of the earth being divided by language, Right? Tower of Babel. So in the days of Peleg, it's when the Tower of, Beleg, uh, the Tower of uh, Babel happened and the dispersion happened from there. So according to, to one fairly famous Bible historian, the flood was about 2349 to 2348 BC, and Peleg was born about 100 years later. So we would expect, if, if that timeline is close to being accurate, the oldest nations would start just after the birth of Peleg, Right? So let's look at some, let, let, let's consider historical records, not in the Bible, but outside historical records of the formation of these ancient nations. Start with Babylon. There's an ancient nation. Um, in, in 331 BC, Alexander the Great had defeated Darius and he went to Babylon. There he received 1,903 years of astronomical observations from the Chaldeans who were there at that point. And they say those observations date back to the founding of Babylon. Well, that would place Babylon, the founding of Babylon, in 2234 BC, or about 13 years after the birth of Peleg. That's a pretty good fit. Let's do another one. The founding of Egypt. The Byzantine historian Constantinus Manassas, he wrote that the Egyptian state lasted for 1,663 years. Now, if, if that's right, then counting backwards from when Egypt was, was overtaken and destroyed, that gives us a founding of Egypt in 2188 BC, about 60 years after the birth of Peleg. 
That's a pretty good fit too, isn't it? One more. The founding of Greece. The 4th century bishop and historian Eusebius, that's a famous name in church history, um, he, he said that the, the first, the first uh, king of the Greek city of Sicyon, that's west of Corinth, began his reign 1,313 years before the first Olympics, which was in 776 BC. Well, that gives us a founding of Greece in 2089 BC, or about 160 years after the birth of Pelic. Again, that's a really good fit. So here's historical records outside of Scripture that confirm the historicity, the accuracy of that history in the Bible. Great stuff. Now, going along with the ancient nations, there's also the origin of languages. That's kind of how the ancient nations started, right? God confuses the languages, and then you have groups, family groups likely, that break off and form the ancient nations, some of them. And the evolutionary view of languages is a lot like the, their, their biological view. You start with one kind of language, and then it evolves into all the languages we have today. Like, you start off with you know, grunting and, uh, 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 and you club your wife over the head and drag her to your cave and stuff like that, and then you get the languages we have today. The problem is, that's not what linguists find. <laughs> linguists, people who study language, they can, you know, German and French and English, and there's, there's similarities between some of those languages. You can group languages into about 20 different language families, but there's very little connection between the language families. This is what linguists find. And that fits really well with this, <laughs> doesn't it? I love being a Christian. Now, one, one language in particular, and this, this, the, the skeptics, will, the, the, the people who don't believe the Bible, they'll bring this up all the time, the Chinese people. The Chinese people have an unbroken history going right back through your global flood, so we know that there never was a global flood because of Chinese history. Okay, well, let's, you know the language, the, the Chinese don't have characters that look like our characters, they have different ones that look like this. And, this is, and some of these characters, like this one here, is composed of other words. They take simple, kind of simpler words and put them together. This one, to covet or to desire, is composed of this word here, meaning two trees. You can see it there up top. And this one, for a woman. You put those two together and you get desire or covet. Now, why would those two words, putting those two together, equal covet or desire? Hmm. Except, of course, for... The fruit looked good, and there was a desire to take it. Hmm, it's interesting. So the, let's, let's do another one. Here's one that means forbidden or to warn. And again, you see the word two trees, like, like the one we just looked at. You put that two trees together with God, and that gives you the word forbidden. Wow. Why, why would you put those words together and have it mean forbidden? Except, of course, for uh, the, the creation account. The creation account, the events, have been built into the ancient Chinese language. Let's do another one. Here's one that means boat. And you get the word for vessel, which, is, which I guess we, we might expect that one, and the word for eight, and the word for people. Wow. The Chinese language was developed after these events took place. And these are, this is not, this is a little different than modern Chinese script. This is the ancient Chinese script that you get from, from pottery fragments and things that archaeologists have found and so on. The language, whoever invented the Chinese language did so after these events took place, after the flood took place. Interesting. 
Oh, so what, what have we just done? We've, we've looked at these areas here. Our time is just about gone. And in all of those areas, and, and again, the skeptics have attacked the story of Noah and the flood as being completely untrue. Your Bible doesn't make sense. It's not the word of God. Noah's flood. That's, that, that's often the, the poster child for biblical errancy. We know, it's, we know it's wrong because of global flood. But if we really examine, here's what we'd expect to find, and we'd expect other things. This is all we had time for this morning. Here's what we'd expect to find. And then we turn to the scientists, the people who are out there looking at the world around us and collecting data. That's exactly what we find. Great stuff. There's some other consequences that we can discuss just in closing here. If the flood is responsible for the fossil record, and it just makes sense that it is, then the millions of years explanation is wrong, isn't it? Because either the rock record was laid down slowly or it wasn't. It, you, you have an either-or situation there. If the flood deposited the, the rock record with the fossils in it, then it can't be millions of years old, can it? So the, the, a major evidence for millions of years just goes gone. Interesting consequence, isn't it? If you get the flood right, you'll get the age of the earth right. I touched on this yesterday a little bit, the the notion that a flood would have aged the earth. It would have accelerated processes like erosion and sedimentation, mountain building, continental drift, and so on. Those things were all accelerated in the flood. Now, at today's rates of erosion, the canyons that we see, the landforms that we see, probably would take millions of years to form at the rates we see them today. But a flood, if, if you struggle with the age of the earth, and this, this is a controversial issue in the church today. Everybody believes in creation, but some people, no, no, he did it, earth is millions of years old. If this is something that you struggle with, think very carefully about what a global flood can do in a very short time period. It is the key to understanding this, this often hot issue of the age of the earth. Data from ancient history, geology, paleontology, and many other fields, those are the three we covered this morning, support the historical reality of a global flood as the Bible records. You can trust the Bible. That's the final conclusion. We can trust the Bible. And again, as I said when we started this morning, many of you are here, you may be very solid in your faith. You don't really need for yourself any of the information we talked about here. How are your kids doing? How are your grandkids doing? They're going to be confronted by skeptics at school, and if they go on to university and college and take advanced courses in geology or microbiology or something, they are going to run up to powerful forces, their teachers in the textbooks and so on, that teach them that the Bible's not true. Millions of years of slow and gradual evolution. Can you as parents and grandparents be the conduit to get some of this faith-building information to your kids before they encounter those attacks from skeptics? That's, I've got some suggestions. I, I do a TV show, a weekly half-hour TV show. It's on the NRB network and many other religious broadcasters around the world. It's called Creation Magazine Live. It's just a talk show where we chat about crea- evidences for creation. And, and after the broadcast, we put them online on our website, creation.com. There's over 150 episodes. We're shooting season seven right now. can hardly believe it myself. But you, you don't need satellite. You don't need cable TV. Go to our website, creation.com. Pick a topic. Have your kids go there. We've done all kinds of different topics in those 150 episodes. It's a great resource, and it's all free. Now, my number one recommendation for for what you can do for your family to get more of the information we're talking about this week is Creation Magazine. 
It's our flagship publication. It's, it's in its 40th year. This year is its 40th year of publication. It has changed the lives of thousands of people around the world. Many people become safe because in article after article, what we're really doing is, I mean, it's, it's kind of a science and nature magazine, but what we're really saying behind each of those articles is, you can trust the Bible. The Bible's true. Here's another evidence from this obscure field of science that supports Scripture. Here's another one from this field. And here's, here's this. And, here's, and look at this over here. It all supports Scripture. We're holding God's Word up as infallible. And we, and we show support from a, a huge variety of all kinds of different areas of study. It's, a fan, it's, it's, changed, it's changed, my, changed my life. I grew up. I had a lot of questions, like I said. I think it's our number one equipping tool. There's some sign-up sheets over here, and the way it works is it's, it's $750 that's billed to your, 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 your bank account or credit card every three months. And it goes, you're not on the hook for any fixed term. It's not like a phone contract. You can cancel any time. But every three months, that's three months, not every month, that comes off and the magazine keeps coming. Now, what you get is you get a hard copy of the magazine, obviously, to your mailing address, plus a digital copy to your email that you can share on up to five devices, your smartphone, your laptop, your desktop, that kind of thing. And if you sign up today, you get your first issue for free. And, and, and that's, so there you go. Can, can you sign up later at creation.com? Of course you can. But if you sign up here at Gull Lake, you get, a, you get your first issue for free. So there we have it. Now, it, 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 the sign-up sheets, they're over on the side there, and I'll, I'll be over there after the service and, and, and uh, whenever. You can just fill, fill one of those out, and uh, we'll get the first payment there. And to, to give you an illustration, if you've never heard of this magazine before, here's a cover from a few years ago. I'll show you the kind of thing we put in it. See those babies down there at the bottom? They're twins. <laughs> one's black, one's white. Because one of the questions we have, we're going to have a question time, I think, Wednesday evening. But one of the questions that, that often comes up, and it's a good question, is, okay, if the Bible says that all people go back through the Tower of Babel back to Noah, and originally we come from Adam and Eve, then how do Christians explain the difference in skin shade? It's a good question, right? You've got to know there's an answer when, here's what the article looked like. So here's, up here, here's, here's mom and dad, it's a middle brown mom and dad. I don't know if it shows up on the overhead there, but uh, middle brown mom and dad, they had a, a black baby and a white baby in the same generation. Adam and Eve were probably middle brown. Most of the world's population, our brothers and sisters over in were sat seven ministers and so on, They're, most of the world's population is still middle brown today. Most of their kids are going to be somewhere around middle brown, but genetically, it can work out that all the concentration for lots of melon, lots of pigment in the skin concentrates in one and, and not much in the other. So there's an answer to those questions. There's the twins when they were, I think they were eight or nine when that was taken a few years ago. And, and, and somebody asked, well, are they identical twins? Well, no. That's genetics. We're going to talk about genetics tonight, actually. Come back for that one if you had that question. But that, that, the, the Creation Magazine is my number one recommendation. Now, if you'd rather have a book, get this one here. Actually, I'd still recommend the magazine. Get yourself signed up for the magazine. If you'd rather have a book, get this one, the Creation Answers book. Why? Why this one? Because in one book, you're getting answers to more than 60 of the most asked questions. Where where'd the different nations come from? How did, how did different races arise? And so, uh, how did, where did Cain get his wife? What about radiometric dating? What, how did Noah get the animals on the ark? There's a whole chapter on dinosaurs, how dinosaurs fit into the Bible. All kinds of things there. There's other books that we have on Noah's flood. I didn't bring this one with me, but this guy has researched every single argument that the skeptics have thrown at Noah in the flood. How could eight people take care of that many animals? 
And how many animals, and could they fit, and what about the food supply, and what about the herbivores and carnivores, and what about, you know, what about the heating, what about the lighting, what about the water supply, what about the smell, you know, all, all kinds of different things. Actually, do you know what kind of lights they had on, on board the ark? Floodlights. <laughs> so, anyway, that's a, if, you, if you've got questions about Noah's flood, I'd recommend that one. You, you need to go to creation.com to order that one. I, don't, I didn't bring it with me. What I did bring with me is, if you want to study Genesis, this is a commentary, Genesis 1 to 11. And, and the thing is, it covers 11 chapters, it's nearly 800 pages. <laughs> it's a huge book. And you might be saying, how can it be 800 pages if it only covers 11 chapters of Scripture? The reason it's so thick is because it does what commentaries do, it draws the meaning from the text, here is what God's Word says, here's what it means, and it's written by one of our scientists, we had him put in the science that supports what the biblical text says. So in one volume, you get it all. You get the science and the theology side by side. I call it the Rolls-Royce of creation books. It's a fantastic book. But uh, Noah's flood is the key to understanding earth history. Does that statement make more sense now than it did 45 minutes ago? It, It really is, isn't it? If we don't get the flood right we're going to get wrong answers in some of these areas. Anyway, lots of fun. There's more coming tonight. And again, I'm available for questions. I'm not a very outgoing person. I probably wouldn't initiate conversations, but come and ask me questions or we're going to have a question time. Write them down. Remember your question for the question time and uh, we'll have a good time. Let me just close in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that we can trust it. Lord, forgive us where in those areas where it seems unreliable, like a global flood, and mentioning these fantastic things that we, have, we can't even imagine today happening on the earth, forgive us where, where we doubt. Lord, show us that your word can be trusted. Thank you for scientists. Thank you for the amazing work they've done to reveal how your creation operates in so many different fields. Thank you that we can look at their data and we can see that we can trust your word, that, that it supports what Scripture says. Lord, thank you for faith. Just pray for more faith for all of us, that we believe what your Word says and that we'd get equipped to share your Word with people who struggle, that as a result of those efforts, you would move, move with us, your Spirit would move with us to draw people to your Son, Jesus. Amen.